Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Kirsty Major, Commissioning Editor at The Independent, and this is Double Take, a podcast in which our writers come into the studio to read and discuss one of their opinion pieces. It could be their weekly column or something from the archives that shines some light on this week's news. This week we're back from our holidays and today I'm joined by our economics editor Ben Chu to take another look at his piece. This is the truth about whether Labour's economic policies on renationalisation would actually work. Also in attendance will be our favourite defender of the free market, the Indies managing editor Sean O'Grady. Over to Ben to read his piece. For Labour, it's the glad, confident morning of 1945 all over again. Rail, water, energy, Royal Mail, we're taking them back, John Macdonald declared at the party's conference, reaffirming Labour's manifesto pledge to renationalise a swathe of industries and topping it off with a new pledge to bring private finance initiative contracts back in-house. Cementing the analogy, the Shadow Chancellor cited the post-war Attlee government, which built a new society from the debris of the bomb sites. Yet for the right, it's all a repeat of a horror movie from 1979. Labour seeks to reverse almost 40 years of economic reform that turned our country from the sick man of Europe into a global success story, tweeted Elizabeth Truss, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Renationalisation, such critics suggest, will inevitably plunge us back into public sector sclerosis, union militancy and relative economic decline. So who is right? Would renationalisation be a dream or a nightmare? Is it 1945 or 1979? The answer, which will not please ideologues on either side, is that it depends. It depends on a multitude of factors, some of them structural, some technological, some industry-specific, all hinging on the unknowable future competence of public officials, regulators and politicians. But first, let's not talk about money. A common argument is that programmes of renationalisation of energy companies, water companies and the like would be ruinously expensive for the state in themselves. Even attempting this programme would supposedly prove prohibitively expensive. Double entry bookkeeping is the answer to this kind of confusion. When you sell something for what it's genuinely worth, you do not make yourself any better off. You simply swap one asset for another. The same is true in reverse. If a future government were to raise money from the bond markets to buy out the shares of, say, privatised water companies, it would not make the UK state any worse off in substantive economic terms because while debt would have risen, the state would have also acquired an asset. There would be no hole in the national balance sheet. The right question to ask about nationalisation does not relate to the cost of the transaction, but the future cost of the change of the form of ownership. Are there any grounds for believing that the assets in question would be run more efficiently and satisfactorily by the public sector than the private sector? Would UK public officials likely prove more efficient at running the trains than the patchwork of companies, many of them ultimately controlled by foreign governments, that do the job at the moment? 
Would our civil servants be superior at operating water companies than the private managers that currently perform the task? Would traders employed by a public energy company make a better fist of securing the best value fuel contracts for British households than traders hired by private firms? Other vital questions come into focus. Is the need to pay dividends to private shareholders impeding investment? Is there evidence of price gouging under the current arrangements? What are the incentives acting on private managers? What are the lines of accountability to users? How effective is competition in these sectors? And does the basic structure of the industry present an insurmountable impediment? Could the objectives of nationalisation, driving up service standards and efficiency, be achieved more effectively through better state regulation than outright nationalisation? Labour's programme is superficially popular. Polls show majorities of the public in favour of national ownership of energy, water and rail. There are well-documented fails in all of these sectors, and the clear evidence from Europe is that nationally owned utilities can deliver perfectly decent results. There is nothing inherently superior about private ownership. But polls also show there is little support in Britain for public ownership of airlines or telecoms firms. Few seriously want to reverse the Thatcher era privatisation of British Telecom or British Airways. Those are privatisations that have broadly delivered what was promised. That suggests public support for nationalisation of rail and water could evaporate if those assets turned out to deliver a worse deal for consumers in public hands. Tony Blair is not attending Labour's conference, but one of his old sayings deserves to be heeded by both sides in the excessively ideological battle over nationalisation. What matters is what works. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Ben, thank you for reading your piece. So you said that some people are excessively um, ideological when it comes to nationalisation, and I have one of those people sitting on my right, Sean O'Grady. <laughs> loaded, loaded intro. Yeah. Sean, why do you hate nationalisation so much? I lived through it, for one thing. Um, I'm old enough to remember British Rail, uh, the water industry, the post office, which used to run the telephones in this country, um, as well as all the manufacturing industries that were nationalised in the old days. So I think the British government owned car factories, but also a factory that made fridges for example the shipbuilding industry the aerospace industry um it was huge the public sector and on the whole it was inefficient uh, underinvested politically interfered with in all sorts of ways um and the service of the public by and large was poor 
And it was one of the things that you noticed about the country, um, especially compared to overseas countries, is that it was it was run down. And one of the, some of the worst bits of run down infrastructure were owned and not invested in by the public sector. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples about some of the things that would go wrong on an economic level, um, which is that in the 70s, for example, the 60s and 70s, all the way through, really, there was competition for investment funds. You had a choice either to build a new hospital or improve a railway station or railway line, for example. And for obvious reasons, most of the time, the railways, the water industry, uh, the post office, the telephones, they came off second best to public services. Now, you could say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but generally speaking, politics came into it. Another thing that used to happen in the 70s, you, you could get it again uh, in the future, was the governments became very concerned about inflation. And they would say to the post office, you can't put your charges up. You can't put your charges up for increase, for taking parcels from one end of the country to the other because that will push up inflation. So to the rail companies, to the bus companies that were run by the local authorities, the electricity tariffs, the gas tariffs, everything. So what happened then was that they just run up enormous losses. And when they ran up enormous losses, the taxpayers had to pay for it. So you've got a big sort of distortion going on because taxpayers, some of whom were not particularly rich, would be subsidizing companies that use the mail a lot or wealthy commuters coming into London from the home counties. So you've got a lot of inefficiencies, a lot of bad pricing. And third of all, I think it was generally true, I and mean, it's not necessarily the case, but it tends to go together, is that you have a big monolithic organization like the National Bus Company or the British Rail, that sort of thing, and you have a union or a set of unions that dominate the industry they can bring the whole thing to a halt. They can bring the whole thing to a standstill. And the, the, those are the days when you would have a national rail strike or a national bus strike, uh, and it would make a big difference to the country. Whereas if they go on strike now, uh, they don't disrupt everything. Uh, in fact, they just disrupt a few lines by and large. So there's a number of reasons, uh, mostly economic reasons, and why then, nationalization works so badly. So, Ben, do you think it would be the same this time around, or do you think there's structural differences? Well, it's very important to put the right structures in place. So all those bad things which Sean describes, and, and I think there is some a lot of truth in the way that uh, nationalised industries worked in the 70s and some in the 80s. There is some truth in that, and it's very important to have the right levels of independence for the management of if we do go through this renationalisation phase that they are in place. Because you don't want ministers telling uh, managers of the industries to, to sort of, as Sean Put you know put up coal prices down because that help us part politically or put wages up because that will help us politically as well. You need to stop that happening absolutely. But I think um, I think it's very important to separate separate out some things. I mean, Sean talks about underinvestment, which there definitely was underinvestment, particularly in transport uh, and in the nationalisation era. But that's not a fun that's not a particular problem due to the nationalised nature of the industries themselves. That's a problem of politicians deciding to underinvest 
and us reaping the, the adverse consequences of this. So there's no particular reason why underinvestment has to go with nationalisation. As we see, as I mentioned in my piece from the continent, we have uh, nationalised rail uh, um, lines and uh, train operating companies in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Italy, with high levels of investment. France is a very good example. They've invested a lot. So there's no particular reason why we have to have decrepit and crumbling industry under a nationalised status. The, the Europeans show us very clearly how it can be done. I mean, and another point is, I mean, I'm, I'm Sean is significantly older than me, but <laughs> even I can remember when industries weren't, the, some of the privatised industries were under national ownership. Mm. It's, it's, not, it's, it's a sort of a myth that's put about that it all goes back to the 70s. Mm. Water was only nationalised in the early 90s. Royal Mail was only nationalised in the past three or four years. So this idea that you have to go back to sort of the uh, Callaghan-Wilson era to to know what it was like, to experience this, this horror of nationalised industries just simply isn't true. The problem of nationalisation, as I said in my piece, there was very good reasons for privatising certain industries such as British Telecom um, and um, uh, British Airways because there was a potential for competition in those industries. Though, as we've seen with the rise of budget airlines, with the rise of mobile telephony, um, by privatising you did get greater efficiencies, absolutely true, and the public do not want to turn the clock back on that according to polls. There's a very big difference when you've got a natural monopoly such and what's as water. a natural monopoly? A natural monopoly is a situation where you have a sector where it's unable for other firms to come in and compete for uh, customers. So if you consider something like the water industry, it's not practical to carve up the lines of water supply to every single home. It has to be a particular company doing it. Similarly with a train operating company, you can't have 10 different uh, rail providers on the same piece of track. It's simply not going to work. Those tend to be, yes, what they call natural monopolies, meaning that they're not contestable in a market context. And economic thinking suggests that there's a very strong case for keeping them within uh, single national ownership because the efficiencies that one would hope to get from privatisation in many other contexts, one can't get if the industry is structured in that way. And you also avoid the problem of freeloading, which is a problem you said, Sean, applies to nationalisation, that you have companies, say, making the most of a nationalised mail system. But in the UK, you have a system where um, there's a great deal of investment in infrastructure, like railway lines, but then you have private companies mm. benefiting off that. So there's a problem of freeloading for both of them, for both models, right? Yeah, I think the problem there is that if they under, if they sell the public asset below the price at which it's genuinely able to uh, deliver profits, and that does give a an, an unwarranted um, economic uh, windfall to the to the the oper private operator which gets it. The, the the trick there is to sell it at the right price, mm. which. It's, a, it's debatable because there's not always a market price for these assets. We had a big debate uh, both for Royal Mail about what was the right price, and they sold it to private investors at a certain price, then the share price went up sharply, and everyone said, you've sold off the family silver far too low, you've ripped off the public effectively. And then the price came down slightly. It's still above where the float price was. So it's hard to do, but the, the right principle is to not is to avoid what you're talking about. The sort of free free riding uh, problem is to to make sure you sell it properly at the right price and you don't underprice public assets. And can you have that problem of freeloading while you're running assets that have been nationalised? Do you agree, Sean, or do you think fundamentally? I think you've got to look at it in a slightly different way. I mean, if the government builds a road and I drive on the road, am I freeloading on it or not? I don't know. I think that you. I think that the idea of a natural monopoly is a very well established bit of economic orthodoxy, 
Um, but like all orthodoxies, it's got its flaws and it needs to be revised. I mean, there are some areas where industries were natural monopolies. In other words, where it made sense to have one company doing it because it would cost more to have more than one company doing it. Like the old post office or Royal Mail. But what's happened since then is that the world's changed. You've got a lot of different delivery providers now. Uh, the Royal Mail's monopoly has been eroded quite a lot. Uh, and there is more competition. And I think people generally benefit from that. And they'd rather that there was that competition. And by the way, <clears throat> the fact that Royal Mail was privatized only lately meant it was more difficult for the company to make strategic choices, merger decisions, um, raise money for capital investment and so forth, in contrast to the Royal Dutch Post Office or Deutsche Post, for example, who were privatized before and were able to build up alliances and the businesses much better. So there was a lost opportunity there. Even with the railways, um, you can see a situation where it's, it can be true that a, a commuter line is a, is a, quote, natural monopoly. But even there, you have various amounts of competition because there comes a limit to how much a natural monopoly can abuse its market. Um, so if it charges too much, people move that away, the people or they change their thing. Well, the thing about the thing about the thing about bringing that into account. If you look at if you look at booking ahead now, advanced bookings. If you look at shopping around on all the price comparison sites for gas and electricity tariffs, I've changed mine a few times. I've changed my mobile phone tariff a few times as well. You can do a lot in the way of competition under a privatisation regime. That's demonstrably the case. And I think that can help the consumer. I think a lot of problems with the railways were partly due to <clears throat> underinvestment in the old days, which is admitted. And one of the reasons for privatization was to get investment into the railways in mm -hmm. the first place. Since that happened 20 odd years ago, the economy has grown enormously and the railways have been, the rail operating companies have been successful in getting more passengers on board. So that's why the trains are more crowded than they were in the old days, because they're better. Uh, they're probably more economical if you book the right sort of ticket at the right sort of time, and they happen to make money. So there's money for investment. Those are all true. And at the end of, I mean, the, the, the substitute for competition, although there is competition, there's always competition, because I could spend £50 doing one thing or £50 doing another. I can go on a bus rather than a train. I can drive or but not. But that's not true, so Sean. That's, that's not true at all. And there is... a definite monopoly on the railways in the UK there is if you can spend eight hours on a bus or you can spend two hours on a train well there you go they, no, they, there is your choice and you as you as a consumer have a choice you have also, a choice to eat caviar or chips I mean we all have a choice about what we wish but not, not, not if you want to get a work on time no, no, but in the long in run, the when the long run as the economy adjusts to these things what you tend to find happening for it, if you have an extreme example like that is that people move away they don't go to work in London anymore they go and work somewhere else if they that's have. not true like people well they do I mean, generally no, Sean, speaking we're moving away. that's not true like there's negative decisions you can make in, in the sense that you have negative freedom you have to make certain decisions most people have to get on those trains and the fact is that they put the cost onto the customers in terms of the cost of comfort yeah there's more people on the trains but there's more people but sitting in aisles drawing them, the rush hour trains because you, they have no other option that just shows no, because that because the economy has grown so much and because the train service is good The economy has grown so much now. as in the people who own the trains their pockets have grown but customers are having a well, much worse time let's, go, let's look at that point I mean the, 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 the point there is that you're saying that the profits are bad. Profits are not um, some sort of impost or a tax. Profits are there as a reward 
for the people who put the investment in to get a return back. That's the first thing. Uh, if you break the link between profits and investment, you you break the the economic logic of the thing, and you and you automatically and gradually become a more and more slurotic and inefficient system to allocate resources in a market economy. So if you if you think the price of railway tickets to Liverpool is too high, what would you have them do? You see, there you go. You're the political <laughs> interference. You're saying £100 to get to Liverpool is far too much. Let's make it 50 or 40 or 30 If you do that, that's fair enough. Uh, you'd probably get more people on the train, but leave that to one side. The consequence of that is that you would um, have the taxpayer paying for your ticket. There's no good reason for that. There's no good reason for that. Ben, what's your opinion on nationalisation of the, the railways as a specific example? I think there's certainly a case for it. Um, I mean, Sean mentioned again this this issue of investment, the idea that the sort of the rationale for uh, nationalising British, uh, sorry, privatising British Rail in the early nineties, you've got to get this investment in, but it, it doesn't really stack up because there's no reason why the uh, the major government, for instance, couldn't have invested significantly more in the railways um, from the public uh, funds. It can be done, as I said, we've seen it on the continent. And this is what the problem is, I think, with nationalisation. I think up to a point, privatisation makes sense, as, as in those industries I've talked about, where competition can be brought to bear. But the, the problem with the Conservatives, and to a certain degree, New Labour as well, they, they pushed it to an extreme. It became an ideological goal in itself, this fetishization of the profit motive. Yes, it's important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And you can do certain, you can achieve certain ends through public means as well. The question is, um, what's the best way to do it? What's the most efficient way to do it? And the trouble with the the idea of uh, privatising water, privatising uh, the, the rail system, uh, Royal Mail to some extent, although I think you can make more of a case for that one actually because of the contestability of it, because there are other providers of postal services. But with those natural monopolies, there was this sort of faith in this idea that it would be a magic bullet and you get these amazing efficiencies. And we simply have not seen those. Yes, investment has gone up. Fine, that's a good thing. But there's also been a lot of siphoning off of value, a lot of balance sheet manipulation by these companies, particularly in the water sector, which is really wasteful and has delivered an unwarranted windfall to private companies. And we don't have to do it that way. And we've, you know, we haven't talked about it, but the, John, the, the PFI issue, which John McDonnell raised at the Labour conference, PFI was essentially, to a large degree, a degree of balance sheet manipulation, the kind of thing that I'm sure Sean utterly deprecates, this idea that you can simply shift something on the balance sheet, the public balance sheet, uh, so it doesn't appear as public sector net debt, and therefore it fools people into thinking that you're not borrowing when you really are. Let's be honest about it. Let's have it on the balance sheet in a public way, rather than trying to trick people into, into thinking these are liabilities that don't exist. And I think there was a motivation between a lot of these privatisation manoeuvres and, and uh, uh, agendas over the past two decades. Well, the reason why that arose uh, in the early 90s, you're quite right about the timing, it was the Conservative government that invented the PFI's private finance initiatives or public-private partnerships, as they're also known, which is getting the private sector to raise the money and build something like a hospital or a road and then charging the state or consumers of it uh, in order to get the funds back. Those things were done because the markets were very unwilling to lend the major government any more money. 
uh, they were running in those days what seemed an enormous deficit after the recession of about 89 to 92. So the public finances were in a poor shape. Uh, they got better. But it was difficult for governments at that time to borrow. Mm. Uh, I think uh, in the Blair-Brown years, they were nervous about doing so um, because Labour governments had had trouble over-borrowing in the past. And that's what worries people now, a lot of observers now. So in the first place, it's a, there's a question of the limit, the overall sort of limits of borrowing. And as I say, in the second place, there's an issue about mixing it all up. So you're borrowing to build... Um, warships, you're borrowing to build roads, you're borrowing to build hospitals, you're borrowing to pay nurses, and so on. And the markets can't very easily see what the returns are for that. They're generally in favor of infrastructure spending, uh, but not without limit. And there have been some notoriously wasteful and inefficient and white elephant infrastructure projects that we've had in this country over the years, put entirely publicly funded, privately built with public fund, not PFI, so opposite of PFI like the Humber Bridge, for example, which never, ever uh, made a return. So you get stuff like that. And I think that, um, as I say, the, the important thing is to make sure that the people who use the service pay for the service, allowing for public externalities like pollution and congestion on the roads and so forth. So you might subsidise the railways for that reason. Um, and that the people who get a return from investing in uh, these companies, the same as private companies, the same as investing in Marks and Spencer or Amazon.com, get the returns from it in a, in a fair way. And if there are abuses and so forth, that's what the regulators are for, that's what the competition authorities are for. And with the railways and the bus companies, <clears throat> for example, it's simply not true that they, they have a monopoly forever and ever, like it was in the old days before nationalisation when there were private uh, rail companies that actually did run down the railways, didn't have much money for investment. You found that um, now, as many of these companies have found to their cost, there's a seven-year franchise. And when the franchise you know, comes up, if they haven't done a good job, if they've been abusing it, and they haven't got the balance right between the consumer and the owners of the company and the, the shareholders and so on, they lose the franchise. That just goes. It, they, they lose it and the value of the company goes down with it. So there's an incentive for them, apart from many other incentives. Yeah, but I think, yes. I think this is where the story you're telling slightly falls apart, actually. If you look at somewhere like Southern Rail, and this is a good argument against privatization mm. in the the, the the terms of that contract that southern rail you know the complete disaster mm -hmm. zone that serves the southeast of england the the, the um the terms of that contract are written so tightly that it's effectively a nationalized industry in all but name so it's essentially the government the transport secretary is using southern rail there as a kind of patsy uh, to take all the abuse from running an underinvested, incompetent service where they're trying to take out the guards from the trains, big union backlash against that. But it suits the Department of Transport, Chris Grayling, to say, well, this is a privatised sector. It's nothing to do with me. <clears throat> but effectively, he's calling all the shots. So it's nationalised in all but name, effectively. And we should be... And that's a, that's a classic example of where privatisation is not appropriate because it's, a, it's an effective natural monopoly for the southeast of England in terms of rail transport into the centre of London. So obviously the commuter traffic all tends to go on there if anyone's beyond zones one to three. They, they have to travel in that way. Um, and the, it's effectively, as I say, a sort of sham 
privatisation. So that's the very thing that we should be trying to get away from if we want to build up confidence in the system, investment in the system and, uh, and efficiency in the system. Um, so as I say, I'm not certainly not against all privatisations, but I think it has to be used where it's appropriate and has to be considered in the context of how effective the regulators are and how honest actually ministers are being about their degree of control and the degree to which ministerial decisions are driving what's happening in that sector. But the whole of the whole of Corbyn and McDonald's ethos is they want to uh, take control. They want to run these things in the way they think should be run for the benefit of the public, if you like the benefit of consumers, which is all very well. But as I say, you will end up with a potentially much less efficient, more wasteful, bigger loss making, and very much more highly unionized. I mean, the the thing about Southern Rail is it suffers from the same sort of trouble that the London Underground uh, does, which is a, 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 a sort of vestigial union militancy, which I agree is, is given some leverage by their uh, market power, by what's happening with the company. But <clears throat> at the end of it, Southern Rail can't be blamed for all of uh, everything that goes wrong on their service because the unions are on strike far too much. Ben, do you agree that it would make the workforce more sclerotic because we, it's heavily unionised? I think Britain has a great problem in relations between workforces and managements full stop. And that goes across all industries, private and public, big and small. We need a new kind of way of dealing with uh, relations between the, the workforce. Uh, and that's why it was so uh, disappointing, actually, that Theresa May came in with this idea of putting workers on boards. Mm. Um, and now it's been watered down to the point of oblivion, where it doesn't really exist anymore. Um, there's n- no substantive change there. That's the kind of context, actually, I was talking about in my piece that you need to take consideration of when you're talking about these debates between nationalised and privatisation. As I say, often it's only a debate in, a, in to some degree about, for, about names. It's a semantic debate. I, I think you're, on, you're asking the right, the right kind of question in that how do you get workforces in general to be to feel more uh, listened to, 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 to give them more of participation and feel that everyone's pulling in the same direction and that, you, that can go very badly wrong whether it's a nationalised or a privatised industry. And indeed, you can go the other way. We have precarious work, which is the, at the other end of the spectrum. My last question is how possible is privatisation? So we look at PFI and... Now, because our law enshrines property is the first and foremost thing to protect, can those contracts be dissolved? Is it illegal going back? No, it's not. It's not illegal. You said in your piece it was illegal when you wrote for us about. No, it's it's not. Well, let me say that you you can't um, one party to a contract can't arbitrarily renounce it. Um, That's not the way the country and the rule of law works. What could happen is that Parliament can. Uh, pass an act of parliament that says these things don't exist anymore or these specific ones don't exist anymore because parliament is sovereign or the people are sovereign or one or the other but anyway it can do that um and there would then be legal challenges to it uh, it would go through the courts and we'd see what would happen there it's not the sort of area that um is very much tested so it is possible for governments to do so but what happens when that occurs is that investors become rightly very suspicious about lending money to a government or contracting into a commercial relationship with a state entity that is liable to be torn up when it doesn't suit them. Uh, That's not how the rule of law is supposed to work. And what happens then, the direct consequence of that, is that they'll build in a bigger 
risk premium, as they call it. In other words, if you trust a government not to tear up its contracts and so forth, you'll, you'll lend it money at 3% a year. If you think it's liable to tear up the thing, you, you, you'll charge them 50% a year because you, you don't know next year whether you'll ever see your money again um, because it's run by a gang of fanatics or something. So that's the lesson. The lesson of history is that uh, the countries that default or tear up contracts or nationalize things without compensation and all that sort of business, um, they can do it. They do do it. Um, it doesn't usually have a happy ending for anyone, uh, but the definite consequence of it is for the long run your credit rating goes down in other words you're you're regarded as less trustworthy your cost of borrowing goes up and so you spend more money on interest and divvies than you should otherwise do if we have investment banks because there's a lot of talk from the mcdonald team about developing national and regional investment banks does yes. that mean that you don't lend from private lenders but it's national lenders? yes so that's that right work? it's a sort of pseudo thing so you have one civil servant sitting in the corner who's the National Investment Bank and another one in the other corner who's the National Rail Company. And then they sort of pretend to negotiate something between them and at the end of it, the taxpayer's paying for it. That's how it works. And the whole thing is bogus. And the thing is, the, the, the industries were run, tend to be run generally, and will be run in the future, I believe, for the producer interest. The public sector will be created, uh, enlarged, and run for the producer interest. In other words, the teachers' wages, the nurses' wages, um, the students' fees, all those things will be favoured. All those things will be favoured. The rail workers' wages will be favoured. The water workers' wages will be favoured. They'd be going up all the time. There'd be union power to back it up. But the people who would not be favoured in that circumstance are the consumers who have to deal with this problem of costs going up, escalating all the time, completely in a way that they're not allowed to or they couldn't be done in the private sector, which is competitive and ha does have international pressures on it. Um, and also the taxpayers would be paying more and there'd be enormous pressure on the public finances. You would probably get more inflation. You would get the cost of borrowing for governments going up and you probably would have some sort of a, a, a crash like and some 70s. sort of result to the IMF. And we've gone full cycle. Like the 1970s, that's perfectly <laughs> true and it did happen. On, on this idea of tearing up contracts, mm. of course it would be, you're absolutely right, of course it would be a terrible idea if Labour came in and said we're going to expropriate all the holders of these PFI contracts, all the holders of the shares in water companies, all the holders of the shares in rail companies with no compensation or maybe a 50% haircut, whatever. That would be a bad idea, absolutely. But it's a, if Labour didn't do that, if they bought these assets at fair value, and if they said, we will give you uh, the money you've invested, we will give it you back and you can invest it somewhere else. There's absolutely no reason to, to buy into this sort of scare story that it would be sort of bring, sh send the price of government borrowing shooting through the roof or the, no private sector entity would ever trust well, the government again. As long as people don't get ripped off, there's, it's really a lot of nonsense to suggest well, that, um, you know, we would be heading towards Venezuela. What is the definition of a fair value? You see... I could go around to your house and tell you it's worth half what you think it is or what the estate agent thinks it is because that's just market rates or just what you fancy. I think a fair rate for your house will be such and such mm. and so I'll give you that and you can lump it. Now that's what would happen under that circumstance. It's another way of saying thieving. Fair price is fair in the eyes of Jeremy Corbyn, not fair in a market well, value or as you, really. as you would as anyone would value. The only way you, 
And if you pay the on company accounts, a company will have to say what they think the value of their assets yes. is worth. If the government offers to pay that value, what possible reason could these investors well, say we won't we, know, we won't accept that because they think it's worth more than they put in their company no, accounts? Because, because it's worth less than they put in their company I, accounts? It doesn't make I, any sense. Well, if I own an asset, I'm a company and I own an asset. Whether I wish to sell that asset for any given price is a matter between me and a prospective buyer. I can't be made to do so by a government. And if I am, these consequences that I've talked about, very damaging, will follow. It's, it's basically a form of uh, partial theft. If you say the government wants to buy my company, same thing. On my company, I could have it privately valued or it may be on the stock market so you can see its valuation. Everyone can see the valuation of it. There's a market value attached to it. The government pays me that. Even then, I believe I should have a choice about buying or selling it. But anyway, that would be a market raise. Um, what you can't be forced to do is take less than that. There is no moral well, reason with that. to do so. I'm saying they, wouldn't, they shouldn't and wouldn't do that. No, but you're saying you've got an asset on the balance sheet which may have been marked down by a sort of historic cost or something, and therefore you pay for that. I mean, that's just that's just sophistry. That's just what you would call balance no, I'm sheet not talking manipulation. About mark, I'm not talking about marked down. I'm saying what they think the value of their asset is worth. They think in terms of their their accountants and their But you, their have, to, you have to give the owner of the property... Uh, and the rights of property are an important part of the rule of yeah. law, I think. And you have to give the owner of the property the freedom yeah. to well, you're, you're, sell you're, you're or not sell talking about the idea of giving price. them a premium for the, as the price of having to put part of an asset which they may not be willing to part with. Well, that's but, exactly but, right, but because if you've got that and you think you've got something that's going to make a lot of money in the future, then you'll, be, you'll, you'll ask for a... I mean, when, when companies take over other companies on the stock market, you regularly see a jump in the price yeah, compared to where right. it was the night before because, you know, they're taking into account all these other factors. It's been undervalued, actually, and uh, it's got a stream of profits coming into the future, which the shareholders yeah. uh, wish to keep. Yeah, okay, that's all That's all a fair point. But I'd just like to point out that on Labour's manifesto, in the sense that there's any detail at all on any of this renationalisation programme, what they actually say about rail companies is not that they will wholesale take them back from the private sector, it's that they will allow, that they will, when the franchises expire, they will allow a public company to take over that franchise. So there's no expropriation there at all. It's simply the natural running down of these franchises. Now, I agree, we haven't seen any detail on any others. We don't know exactly what they're planning. John McDonnell has said certain things in interviews which could be interpreted in a very in the kind of light Sean's talking about. But in terms of actually what they've put in their manifesto, it's certainly nothing like the uh, sort of private sector expropriation that, that Sean's talking about. Well, what happens on day two then when they need to start spending the investment and they need well, to pay we'll the workers? Well, we'll do another podcast on that, that? Sean. <laughs> and thank you both for joining us. Before we go, one last thing. If you had to, had to, Sean, nationalise one company or service, what would it be? You had to. Oh, well, that might be water. Ben, yeah, yours? definitely water. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe on Acast, iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Helen Hodnot produced this episode. I'm Kirsty Major. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.